Let me tell you about Henry. Henry's an 18-year-old who's grown up going to a Bible-teaching church. He, he can't really remember an age where he, he didn't believe the claims he've heard, he's heard about Jesus. He, he'd always called himself a Christian, a likable lad, sociable, talented at football, got on well with everyone. And yet there's been a secret that has stalked Henry for the last few years. No one's particularly noticed that he goes very quiet when the lads talk about the hot girls in the youth group. He says nothing at that point because what he really wants to say is that he's attracted to the other guys in the group, not to the girls. He's about to head off to university and as he prepares to go, he sort of finds himself thinking, well, it's a chance for a fresh start. All he wants, all he aches for is a boyfriend. And he comes up to you one Sunday, you've known him for years, and he says to you, I'm heading off to university, I'm thinking about making a fresh start, tell me what you think. What are you going to say to Henry as he stands there before you? Well, let me tell you about Stephanie. Stephanie's in her, her late 30s, she's, she's had a string of relationships that just haven't quite worked out with guys She's finding the single life really, really hard. She talks about it pretty openly in small group and how she, she longs to be in a relationship. And the last three, four months, she's become really close with Hillary, a, a work colleague. They've been spending more and more time together and, and the friendship has grown deeper and deeper and moved to a physical relationship. She was as surprised as any to, to find that the case, but she's found happiness that she has never experienced before. Her small group rejoiced with her and her, her newfound happiness and answered prayer and no idea why she's feeling the way she is. One Wednesday evening, as you're, you're driving her to small group, she, she tells you all about her new relationship with Hillary. And she looks at you and she says, tell me what you think. What, what do you think about this new relationship with Hillary? What are you going to say to her? What would you say to, to Henry? What would you say to, to Stephanie as they come to you? So we, we've heard in, in Genesis 1 a couple of weeks ago, as Richard opened up that passage, what, what God's blueprint for marriage is. We've seen how God created marriage to be between a man and a woman. That's the place where, where sex is to occur within that marriage relationship. And maybe you're here and you've grown up hearing that all your life. That's not news to you. But as you look Henry in the eye, are you really going to deny him sex forever? The relationship that he longs for. As Stephanie turns to you in the car, are you going to turn back to her and deny her the one relationship that has brought her happiness? You see, it seems that for, for many of us, there's a plausibility problem. We find ourselves thinking, I, I know what the Bible says, I've, I've heard that, but it just doesn't sit comfortably with me when I think of, of two people who are committed to one another in a loving, caring relationship, and they just happen to both be men or both be women. The voice in silence just says, that just doesn't seem reasonable. And it's not just a voice inside our head. There's, there's a growing number of voices out there, uh, even from within the evangelical church, that would say exactly the same. They'd say, look, that's not plausible. That's not reasonable. One of the leading voices maybe 
you've heard her speak as a lady called Jane Ozan. This week I've, I've read her book, well, a book that she's uh, put done the beginning to and, and others have contributed, a book called Journeys into Grace and Truth. It's written by a group of men and women, men and women who describe themselves as evangelical, uh, and they've shifted their position on sexuality. Here's what Jane says right at the start of her book, well, the book she's contributed towards. She writes this, there's a growing number of voices across the church, including the evangelical wing, that believe it's, it's possible to hold an affirming view of same-sex relationships and who want to affirm LGBTI Christians for being who they are in Christ. For too long, people have felt silenced for saying what they believe, for fear of being called unsound by their colleagues. The time for silence is now over. One of the contributors, one of the, the ladies who's written a chapter in this book, Journeys into Grace and Truth, uh, a lady who's an evangelical vicar, writes this. It's difficult to put into words how sickeningly awful it was when she, when she came out, when she told her congregation about her, uh, her orientation. But she goes on, I reckon that God would somehow understand and love me all the same. A fallen sinner who was just trying to do the best she could to survive. So I stepped out, and I found my wonderful, loving, beautiful saviour was walking right with me. He was there, just as he had always been. You see, as we we hear those voices inside us saying, look, this just isn't plausible, as we hear voices like those we've just heard saying, look, it's not plausible to take an orthodox position on sexuality, what have we done in response well, it seems there's two main things we've, we've done in response. One is we've just gone for radio silence. We've just said, I'm, we're just not going to say anything. We're so worried of saying something slightly wrong. Trust me, I feel that acutely tonight. <laughs> I've agonized over this talk probably more than any, over, uh, any other. We're so worried about saying something wrong, we say nothing at all. We go, we go with radio silence. Or we go for the approach of, of just saying no. So Henry's there before us, and we just say to him, just say no. That's all, and and we leave it at that. Radio silence, or or just say no. I think both of those options are woefully inadequate. Because the danger is that we make out what the Bible teaches, what I believe is the clear teaching of the Bible, what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus, we make out like that is a bad deal. Like there's a better deal out there on offer. Ed Shaw, in this great book, if, if you're going to read one book, this would be a great book to read. Uh, he's uh, written a book called The Plausibility Problem, and he says he thinks, uh, he thinks one of the big problems we face now is that the, the Bible's teaching on homosexuality doesn't feel plausible because there's a whole bunch of, of missteps we've, we've taken, a whole bunch of things we've sort of bought into that have made it feel like what the Bible says just isn't reasonable. As I've been reading it, I've, I've been challenged by missteps I've taken, by wrong things I've said. Uh, and I want us to just look at some of those missteps this evening. I, I think we're going to find together there are things that we need to say sorry for, ways in which we need to do life together uh, as God's people differently. You see, as we start to correct those missteps, we'll see actually what the Bible teaches is plausible. That following Jesus really is the best deal. 
It says in John 10.10, 10, it's on your sheets, I've come that you may have life, and life to the full, and that is, that is true for all of us. So after a rather long intro, let me, let me pray at that, this point. Father, how we, we need your help this evening. We're aware that this subject is, is emotive. For many, it will touch us personally. Father, we pray, please, that you would show us the truth that the Lord Jesus says that he has come that we may have life and life to the full and following him, even in this area of sexuality, is life to the full. Please help us to sit under your word and hear what it says to us tonight. Amen. Well, let me set a bit of a roadmap where we're going to go over the next few minutes. What I want to do is a couple of things. I want us to, uh, I want us to look at what the Bible teaches, to spend some time seeing, seeing what it says. But I don't want us to spend actually the bulk of our time doing that because I think the problem isn't theology. I think the problem's people. That's why I started with, with Henry and Stephanie. It says we have uh, Henry or, or Stephanie standing in front of us that we, we find ourselves wondering if we can really hold to what the Bible says. Uh, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time uh, thinking about just three of the missteps that I think we've made. So uh, what, does it, what does the Bible teach them? What, uh, what do we see that the Bible says? Well, the temptation is to kind of go for the, the, um, the, the proof text, the kind of, here's the bullet, bullet text that just solves it all. I don't think that's massively helpful to go that way. If you were here last week, Jonathan went for an approach where he, he sort of took us on a sweep through the whole of the Bible. We, we looked at the, the central storyline, the, the plot line of the Bible. I think that's a more helpful way to, to go about it because we, we see what the whole sweep of the Bible is saying rather than just narrowing in on, on one passage. We will look at one or two passages, but I want us to think about the, the central plot line of the Bible. If Think of the Bible as, as four main acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Creation, where, where everything starts. Fall, where, where things go wrong. Redemption, what, what uh, Jonathan called grace last week, how, how things are made right. Uh, and then new creation, the great future on offer. It's basically the storyline that every film goes with as well. So uh, creation, well, we've seen, haven't we, already, that, that God made a gloriously good world, a great world for us to live in. And into that world, he, he put man and woman to live together in a committed, lifelong, one-flesh sexual partnership. That's, that's the beginning, that's where we start, but at the fall we see that, that things go wrong. Those, that perfect relationship at the start um, falls apart, relationships are broken and marred and distorted. Uh, if you close your Bibles, open them back up at, at Genesis 3 that we had read for us. What does Eve do? She, she listens to the snake, she doubts what God said to her. Here she is living in paradise and she doubts that God would hold any good thing back from her. And the first two humans disobey. They uh, eat from the one tree they're told not to. And look at verse 8, see the result of that disobedience. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, and they hid. They, they hide themselves rather than, than enjoying the relationship that they'd be made to enjoy. You see how the relationship with, with God is, is broken at the fall? All of a sudden, humans are afraid of being exposed and, and naked before God. But it's not just the relationship between humans and, and God that's broken. It's the relationships between 
Adam and Eve that we see broken. Look down at verse 16, towards the end there. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So living this side of the fall, every marriage in some ways is going to show marks of being broken and, and marred and, and, and not what it, it once was. So even happy marriages are marked by disagreement, frustration, lack of communication, disappointment. When, when you get a large rock and, and drop it into a pool, the, the effects ripple outwards. And the ripple out effects of the fall are huge. Relationships between people are, are broken in all sorts of ways. So what do we see happening with marriages, with adultery, abuse, broken promises? Couples who, who live together on the same roof but in effect live, live separate lives. And Romans 1 just shows one more way in which uh, this side of the fall, relationships are broken. Because in Romans 1, what uh, Paul does is he he sets out how uh, we've exchanged the creator, we've exchanged God for uh, creaturely things, things of this world. So look at uh, at verses 26 and 27. We'll flick to a few verses, so I've put them up on the screen so you don't need to to look them up. This is uh, Romans... 1, 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their, women, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1, what Paul does is he says there's a whole bunch of ways that we've exchanged uh, the goodness of who God is for things of this world. And this is just one example. And it talks about a a swapping of of what is natural for what is unnatural. Now, there has been a huge amount of ink spilt on what what do those terms mean, natural and unnatural? There are some that want to say, uh, that it's, it's talking about heterosexual people engaging in homosexual activity. So ex- exchanging a natural orientation for an unnatural one. That's how some people want to read what's being talked about here. There are others that, that want to say, that here in Romans 1, it, it is specifically talking about a Greco-Roman problem. Uh, a problem of, of older men taking younger male boys as their, their prostitutes. Now, if if we're going to run with the principle that is an evangelical principle, we let the Bible interpret the Bible, both of those interpretations fall into problems. Because there is no evidence in the Bible that that term unnatural is referring to sort of swapping of your orientation, so if you're heterosexual, engaging in, in homosexual activity. There's just no evidence that that's how that word's used. There's also, if you read through Romans 1, there's, there's nothing to lead us to assume that this is specifically talking about a Greco-Roman issue. Now, the, the words, they're natural and unnatural, refer back to, uh, to the natural order of things, that the way God made things in creation. So it's saying a swapping of how God made man and woman to relate to one another for an unnatural way. A turning from the creature, creature uh, 
from the creature to created things, a swapping of the natural order of things for an unnatural order. And Romans 1 was want to say, say, was wants to say to us that that is just one way in which we've exchanged God for things of this world. But let's be clear that it's just one way. The Bible does not put on a pedestal homosexual activity as a sin over and above any others. Adultery is wrong. Abuse is wrong. But the message of the Bible is clear that same-sex activity is wrong. We could look at a whole bunch of other passages. You might want to go away and do this yourself. Uh, A whole heap of passages. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 1, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. A whole bunch of passages that, that teach the same thing. But look, maybe you're thinking, that's fine. But what about Henry? What about Stephanie? How is it that, that this teaching is plausible for them? How can it be possibly be good news to say to them that it is wrong to engage in homosexual activity. Well, let, let's press the pause button for a minute on the, uh, the tour of the plot line of the Bible. Let's, just for a, uh, for a while, look at some of the missteps we've taken. Just three missteps that I think have led us to a point where we hear what the Bible says and we say, that's just not plausible. It doesn't feel right to me. Here's the first Your identity is your sexuality. Uh, Let me ask you this question. Uh, Who would you say you are? If you had to, in one sentence, say uh, what most defines you, what would you you say? I mean, if you have 20 seconds, just your own, have a think about how you'd answer that. Who am I? What most defines me? Just 20 seconds on your own, have a think. Wonder what you came up with? Wonder what you'd say about yourself in, in one sentence? Well, the Bible would say, if you're trusting in Jesus, the one thing that most defines who you are is that you are a child of God. This is John 1, uh, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Precious, loved, treasured children of God. So if you're here and and you're trusting in Jesus, that is what is most true of you. Your primary identity is not what what job you do, how smart you are, how, how good at sport you are, or your sexuality. What most defines you, if you're trusting in Jesus, is you are a child of God. That is what is most true of you. There's a group of English ministers and pastors who've put together a web- website called Living Out. It's, it's a bunch of, uh, of men and women who are wanting to come out, but in a different way. Coming out saying that they experience same-sex attraction, but they are choosing to not live in a relationship with someone of the same sex as them. 
They're choosing to live celibate lives. One of those guys, Ed Shaw, is um, the chap who's written this book. He said that he, he doesn't like to... He doesn't like people to... When he says to people, tell me a bit about yourself, he doesn't like to say to people that he's gay. Not because he has a huge problem with telling people about what he, his, his attraction is, but he thinks the problem with, with describing himself as gay is it's sort of that becomes the one thing that defines him. And actually, he wants to say there is something far more wonderful that defines me, something far more central to who I am than, than the attraction that I experience. Primarily, I am a child of God. That's what Ed says he wants people to know first about him. The psychologist Mark um, Yarhouse writes this, the church needs to help people with our identity. We can recognize that a gay script is compelling to those of us who experience same-sex attraction, especially when there seem few options emerging from within the church. We can develop alternative scripts anchored in biblical truth centered in the person and work of Jesus. So what, what do we need to do to change as, as God's people? How is it that we can make what the Bible teaches more plausible? It's as we help each other to, to see primarily who we are. What is your and my primary identity? It is as a child of God. So uh, let me leave with this question. How can we help each other? Remember our primary identity as children of God. What can we do Sunday by Sunday, week by week, to to help ourselves to remember that first and foremost, I am a loved child of God. That's misstep number one. Let's come to misstep number two. Um, Let me ask you this. uh, How would you finish this sentence? Family equals. I wonder what what you'd say at the end there. Family equals... I guess for many of us, we'd probably say family equals mom, dad, and 2.4 children, or if you're mad like us, four children. Well, if that's how we think about family, that it's primarily mom, dad, and and 2.4 children, then it's going to seem absolutely implausible as as we look at Stephanie to say to her, no, you can't have that. She's met Hillary, she's on her way to having a family, she's happy. Who are we to deny her that? But Jesus has a much bigger and better view of, of family. Listen to, to Matthew twelve, forty six to, to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what he's doing? He's he's expanding what it is. To think of family, he's saying family isn't primarily your biological family. Family primarily is as you come together as God's people. As you come together Sunday by Sunday and meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. As you remember Jesus as your big brother, you are coming together as, as family. We are united together in an even more profound way than the biological family. 
the, um, the now retired American pastor, John Piper, um, likes to be a bit provocative. He is here, but I think he's right. He says this, marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church is forever. I am declaring the radical truth that being in a human family is no sign of eternal blessing, but being in God's family means being eternally blessed. So to, to live then as family together, what's that going to mean for us? How, how's that going to mean we do church differently? Well, surely to start with, it's got to mean that we spend more than just one hour a week together. That's not family, is it? We've got to make time to, to be together, to, to live together. The single life doesn't need to be cripplingly lonely. It shouldn't be supper on your own every night. If, if family doesn't equal mum, dad, and 2.4 children, but family equals church, well, we've, we've got to spend time together, to eat together, to, to walk together, to go to the pub together, to go on holiday together. How then can we make sure talk of church family isn't just talk? That's misstep number two. Uh, Here's the the last one we'll think about. Um, If you're born gay, it can't be wrong to be gay. It's a pretty strong argument, isn't it? How, How can be being gay wrong if I'm born that way? If I've always felt those feelings? If not acting on my feelings feels as if I'm going against the very grain of who I am? One of the central truths of the Bible is that we are naturally sinners from birth, and yet we are still responsible for our sin. We're naturally sinners from birth, but yet we are still responsible for our sin. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Are we... We see that in, in young children, don't we? I've, I've not had to go to my son, Micah, who's two, and said to, say to him, look, here's how you throw your food on the floor when you're annoyed. Uh, he's worked that out very well for himself. I've not had to uh, walk him through how he has a paddy when I say no to chocolate. No, he's, he's worked that out all by himself. There's a sense in which we know this, don't we? We, we know that we're born making wrong choices. If you're not convinced by it, come and have dinner at my house, and you soon will be. But, but do you notice how, how King David goes on in Psalm 51? Well, actually, back a couple of verses. He doesn't allow the fact he was born as a sinner to excuse his sin. Here's what he says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See how the two things are hold together in Psalm 51? We, we naturally sin, we're, we're born into sin, and yet we are still responsible for our sin. It's what theologians call original sin. Each of us are born into patterns of sin that we just find ourselves doing all too naturally. See that in, in families pretty clearly, don't we? hear people saying things like, oh, he's, he's got his father's temper. Well, the Joneses have always had a problem with alcohol. As I get older, I 
if I'm honest, I'm aware of all sorts of ways in which I'm just a little bit more like my dad, both in the good, but also in some of the not-so-good stuff. We, were, um, we went up to Birmingham on Friday and came back um, yesterday evening, and uh, Anna and I shared the driving coming back. My dad is a terrible backseat driver. I remember as a child sitting in the back of the car thinking, Dad, stop telling Mum how to drive. As I get older, I find myself saying exactly the things that my dad used to say 20 years ago. Anna, do you want to think about going into fifth for the fuel economy? Have you seen, seen the pedestrian over there? I say it and I think, that is exactly what my dad would say. See, you and I are, are born with no choice but to sin. It, it's just how we are. It's, it's hardwired in us. And yet the Bible says that we are still responsible for the choices we make. What, what, a, what does that mean for, for same-sex attraction? How can someone feel they're, they're born gay and yet for us to say that it's wrong to act on it? Well, it's because of what we've just been thinking about. Just because we, we feel an urge to do something, it doesn't mean that it's right to do it. If I told you I was born as a natural stealer, you'd have something to say about that. So let me ask this question. How, how can we better communicate that a natural instinct to do something doesn't mean that it's right to do it? How can we better communicate that a natural instinct to do something doesn't mean that it's right to do it? Now, there are other missteps that we could have thought about too. Uh, if it makes you happy, it must be right. We, we could have unpacked that and thought uh, the problems with that. Sex is where true intimacy is found. That's what we often say, isn't it? Another misstep I'm convinced that we're taking. Celibacy is bad for you. How many people have, have just in a desire to, to help someone said, oh, life would be so much better if you weren't single. See, as we begin to address some of these missteps, we begin to deal with the plausibility problem. How can it be possible to to look Henry in the eye and deny him sex forever? To say to Stephanie, the family she longs for wouldn't be right to pursue. Because you see, Henry, Henry will go off to university and there will be plenty of voices that will say to Henry, just be who you are. But we want to say to Henry, there is a far greater identity that is true of you. Something far more wonderful than your attraction towards other men. You are a child of God, loved, treasured by him, and he has the best for you. As uh, Stephanie struggles with, with the thought of loneliness and life without Hilary, she's not waving goodbye to family forever because the church is her family. They are her God-given eternal family, called to live with her, to to walk with her, to to enjoy time with her, to eat with her, to to have fun with her, to go on holiday with her, to pray with her. When Henry feels like getting a boyfriend is just being true to himself, we want to help him see his thinking and practice needs to be shaped by the Bible's teaching on original sin. I'm going to wrap up in a minute, but let me just finish. We were doing a sweep through the Bible. Let me just uh, come to the last two uh, plot lines in the story. Uh, redemption. Here's how um, the uh, author of the Jesus Storybook Bible puts the next stage, uh, the next plot line in the story. Now, the, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a, 
book of heroes, the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Jesus, the the hero, rescues us as he dies to bring us into his family, as he washes us clean, as he gives us a new identity as his children, loved by him. And the, the last scene of the Bible, new creation, the, the great and glorious future that God offers to all of us. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it uh, in his work, The Weight of Glory. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside, is no more neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the pleasures we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumour that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. A new world order, a new creation when we will see God face to face, when sin will be a thing of the past and, and pain and tears will be gone. You see, sex is, is temporary, Relationships are fleeting, but what God offers each of us is life with him, a life that will massively outweigh even the most wonderful moments of any earthly relationship now. When Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life to the full, he really means it, now and for all eternity. Let's pray together. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Lord Jesus, thank you that that there are no caveats to that statement. That however we might feel attracted, whether that's um, to those of the other sex or to those of the same sex. Thank you that what you say in your word is good news for us. That you offer us life to the full. Please, by your spirit, would you convince us more of how true that is. Please, would you help us to see more of the plausibility of what the Bible teaches. Please, would you help us to be more aware of the the missteps that we walk into, often accidentally, but maybe sometimes knowingly as well. Please help us to, to speak well together of who we are in Christ, that we'd see that as our primary identity, the, the thing that most marks us. Please help us to to live out what it really means to be family, that we'd see that there's something bigger and even better than the biological family on offer. Will we live like that together here at Holy Trinity? And we pray these things.
for the growth of your kingdom, for the good of your people, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.